Today we start a new series called Here Comes a Comeback. And we are praying for a comeback from COVID pandemic uh, for ourselves personally this fall and for our nation and for our world. So we're gonna look at some people in the Bible over the next few weeks that had amazing comebacks because our God is in the business of helping people to have comebacks. Anne Lamott writes, there's nothing as sweet as a comeback when you are down and out, about to lose, and out of time. Uh, Rachel Griffiths writes, there's nothing as exciting as a comeback, seeing someone with dreams, watching them fail, and then getting a second chance. And Lane Kiffin writes, I don't know if God is a sports fan or not, but I do know this, he loves a good comeback. Today we're starting with Naaman, the man who came back from quote, COVID. Uh, actually, it was the COVID of his day, which was leprosy. Now, why wouldn't you expect Naaman to have a comeback? Well, we're going to go four reasons why you wouldn't expect uh, God to give Naaman a miracle. Number one, Naaman was an idol worshiper. Second uh, Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. Uh, Aram was, is today what is the nation of Syria. He was a great man in the sight of his master, uh, the king and highly regarded, because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. Could I just pause for a moment? I find this verse so comforting, because here's this idol worshiper, and yet God is working through him to accomplish his purposes, even though that probably wouldn't be God's first choice. He'd rather work through somebody who was a follower of the one true God, but he's willing to work through others as well. Why that's a comfort to me, and why it should be a comfort to you, is that we're all praying for our candidate or our party to win the elections in November at the local level, at the state level, at the national level. But here's a comfort. Even if our person doesn't win uh, one of those elections, God is still able to work through the person we didn't vote for. And in the same way he worked through Naaman, even though he's an idol worshiper, he can work through the person we don't vote for. We pray uh, for the person that we, we think should win to win, but if they don't, God still can work through that other person. And so it says, because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. He had leprosy. Uh, looking at the map of this time period, uh, you'll see this is what's called the divided kingdom. When there was Israel in the north and Judah in the south today, this would all be the nation of Israel, but they were divided at this point. And here is Syria, and this is the commander, Naaman, of the armies of Syria that this story is about. He was a mighty warrior. Uh, as a matter of fact, historians tell us that his victory, that he gave him such a, a, a reputation at this particular time, was most likely an upset victory of the Syrians over the Assyrians, who were the superpower of that day. Uh, he reminds me of Dwight D. Eisenhower, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. When I was growing up as a kid, uh, there were three heroes in our home. Uh, one was General Eisenhower. My dad was a World War II vet, and so he loved General Eisenhower, uh, the commander of the Allied uh, troops, who eventually became president when I was uh, born. He was the president of the United States. Another of our heroes as a family was Billy Graham. So Billy Graham, uh, General Dwight D. Eisenhower, later President Eisenhower, and then a third hero I'm going to tell you about uh, towards the end of my message. But uh, Naaman was very similar uh, to a Dwight Eisenhower. Now, we learn in verse 18 that he worshiped the idol Rimon. 
Rimon was a relative of Baal, who was the major false god of that time, and Rimon was the uh, storm god. And so Naaman, uh, that's why we say that he was an idol worshiper. Now, he was a winner. He was used to being in control. But Naaman had a problem that only God could solve. And you know, unless you have a problem, you can't have a comeback. Unless you have a problem, you can't have a miracle. Or many times, unless you have problems, you can't have a conversion. It is often the hard things in life that drive us to commit our lives to Christ. God uses problems to get our attention, uh, to get us to turn to him and depend on him. Now, the second reason why I say that Naaman was not a good candidate for a comeback or for a miracle was Naaman was an enemy of God's people, Israel. It says in verse two, now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. Uh, this little girl was a victim of human trafficking. And I, I wanna take just a moment to brag about our church. Uh, there was an event a couple of weeks ago uh, here in Southern California, and it was on the subject of human trafficking. And they referred to Purpose Church at this event as, quote, the champions for victims of human trafficking in Southern California. Our church was referred to as the champions for victims of human trafficking in Southern California. That's one of the things we're known for. And boy, what a wonderful thing to be known for. And your giving and your prayers and your involvement is what makes that uh, ministry possible. Uh, but this little girl is our hero now of the story. But there was an Israelite who loved her enemy. And the hero of this story is this young girl, or the heroine of our story. And children, I want to say a word to you that are joining us here online. Uh, you are never uh, too young to be used by God. We don't know how young this young girl was, but you're never, ever too young to be used by God. She was used by God in a wonderful way, and you can be used by God as well. Now, I've got to confess, if it were me uh, and Naaman and his uh, uh, troops that had raided and taken this little girl out of her home country from her parents, if I was that little girl, I would have just enjoyed sitting back watching Naaman rot from leprosy over the years. That would have been in my heart. But this little girl uh, had a different attitude, and she was an Israelite that even though wrong had been done to her, she loved her enemy. Uh, verse 3, she said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet, he's talking about Elisha, who is in Samaria, that's the capital of Israel, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, we don't know her name, but she changes her little slice of the world with her counterintuitive love. It didn't make sense for her to love her enemy, but she loved her enemy. It was counterintuitive love. The love of Jesus is a counterintuitive love. It loves the tax collector. It loves the zealot. It loves the Samaritan woman. It loves the person shouting out, crucify him. And this little girl, just like Jesus, had a counterintuitive love. Third reason why Naaman should not have gotten a miracle or a comeback is he thought he could buy a miracle. Picking it up with verse 4. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had, had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. That's the equivalent of $2 million of stuff. 
The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Verse seven, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. Uh, Now, please bear with me because I'm gonna be taking a major detour right now before we continue our story on the life of of, of Naaman. But I think it's gonna be worth it if you just hang with me. I've read this story of Naaman uh, many times, but the amazing thing about God's word is that you can always find something new in it. It's just amazing as you read it over the years Uh, you can always find something fresh, always something new that you didn't see there before. Kimberly and I listened to a sermon by Tim Keller uh, the other day, and he showed how this story demonstrates how the God of the Bible is totally different than any other God of that time. So stick with me on this, and we'll eventually hit pay dirt with the Naaman story. Now this year, there's been a lot of talk about justice, but nothing compares to biblical uh, justice. So many things that we take for granted today are only because of what is taught in God's word. Uh, We take it for granted, and we forget the fact that sometimes we don't see the Bible for the radical book that it was because the world has been so influenced by this book, by God's word, by the Bible, so influenced over the past 3,500 years that things that we take for granted now were never taken for granted until the Bible was taught to a particular culture or during a certain time in history. Uh, The Bible teaches the absolute importance of justice. Uh, There's a long passage, but again, uh, bear with me. I want to read all of it. It's Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 10. And God is speaking here. He says, Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. These are religious people. These are people that are seeking after God as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and and they seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet, here's the problem. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all of your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable uh, to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you'll call 
and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger, and with malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Oh my goodness, we see that as just fairly typical today. This, this is something that would have been radical at its time. Radical biblical justice that has infiltrated and changed cultures down through the centuries, down through the millennia over the last 3,500 years. We see the same thing in the New Testament. 1 John 3, verses 17 and 18. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. So this is part of our purpose as lovers of God and followers of Jesus. This is part of what we have been called to as lovers, people who love God and want to follow in the footsteps of, of Jesus. Uh, we were so sad a couple of weeks ago uh, to hear about the death of Chadwick Boseman. Um, many people know him. His first breakout role was as Jackie Robinson. And uh, he himself, Chadwick Boseman, is a follower of Jesus, and he portrayed Jackie Robinson, who was a follower of, of Christ in such a beautiful way in that, in that movie. Um, we, we knew him also, the superstardom, as a superhero, the Black Panther, and that's how he got known to a, a global audience. And uh, he, as I said, was a follower of Christ. As a matter of fact, he talked about praying to get the role of the Black Panther. He, he prayed about that, and God answered his prayers. And he talked a lot in his Christian faith. He talked a lot about purpose. The big subject for him was about purpose. And here's what he wrote. I feel that I'm living my purpose, but the thing about purpose is that it unfolds to you more and more every day. You could be living in what was revealed to you at a particular time, and then you might get stagnated because there's more that you're supposed to do. It doesn't just stop as you do one thing. I think it's about being open to what you're supposed to do at this moment and not getting stuck in the past. Purpose is not related to a career. It's related to what God put inside you that you're supposed to give to the world. Now, another thing about biblical justice that makes it so powerful and so unique is that biblical justice covers everything. It, it covers all other types of justice that people talk about today. You say, Glenn, what are you talking about? Well, Michael Sandel uh, teaches a course on justice at Harvard University. It was a very powerful course. It's the first course at Harvard that they've made available online, and just many, many people around the world have benefited from this. And he made a book out of that particular uh, course called Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do? And the fascinating thing about his book is that he said one of the reasons that we don't have a consensus in our country about justice is because we have so many rival theories of justice. Uh, for example, some people have a libertarian uh, view of justice. That is, you give, giving people equal opportunity. And the most important thing is to give people equal opportunity, and then it's up to people to grab a hold of that opportunity. Uh, another uh, rival theory of justice is what's called the distributivist, uh, which is about redistributing assets and wealth. 
Uh, another theory is called virtue ethics, where you give people what they deserve. Uh, so, for example, with poverty, some would say that the main cause of poverty is it's caused by systemic racism. But others would say that the main cause of poverty is caused by the breakdown of the family. And so there's all these rival views of, of justice. But here's the thing about biblical justice. It covers all of them. All of them are incorporated, included in biblical justice. Let me give you just uh, three aspects of it. There are many more, but let me just give you three. One thing the Bible teaches is equal treatment for all. Uh, Leviticus chapter 24 says, you are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord your God. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, and I love the old King James translation, it says, and God hath made of one blood all nations of men. You see, in so many cultures, even today, but especially back then, blood was everything. You defended the people that shared your bloodline. Uh, that's where your, all your passion was for, not for anybody else, but only if they shared your blood. And so the Bible teaches that we all shed the same blood. We all are of one blood. We all shed red blood. No Vulcan green blood around. It's, it's blood red. And it's the same blood hath made of one blood all nations of men. And that eliminates any cause for racism or for, uh, because all ethnicities and races are all, uh, we all are of the same blood, the Bible teaches. And so it teaches that we're to have equal treatment of all. Uh, one of the things that's interesting in the Bible that you just see over and over again is that the Bible is so against bribes. It is, the Bible is just death on bribes because bribes uh, causes there to be unequal treatment. Um, if, if one person has money, another person doesn't have money to bribe with, it means that there's unequal treatment under the law and there is no justice. Uh, one of the things that makes America such a good place to live is the relative, I wouldn't say the total, but the relative absence of bribes. Uh, that's something we just take for granted. You go to many countries around the world and everything is done by bribes. And so those that have money are able to get things done, and those that don't have money are not able to get things done. And that's why the Bible is so against bribes, and all through it, from cover to cover of the Bible. Uh, Isaiah 1, verse 23, your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts, and as a result of this love of bribes, they do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. And so something the Bible is very powerful on and very strong on is equal treatment for all. But then another aspect of biblical justice is special concern for those without power. Proverbs 31 verse 8, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Let me repeat that. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Uh, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and of the needy. Uh, this is why our church, Purpose Church, has a food ministry, a clothing ministry, a homeless ministry, to speak up for those that can't speak or help themselves. That's why we build water wells in Thailand and we teach girls in Pakistan and we help rebuild Beirut and Lebanon. Uh, this is why we're involved in, uh, in foster care and why we are, quote, the champions for victims of human trafficking 
in Southern California. Uh, this is why we have a pro-life ministry. Because who more than the unborn, if we could just go back to verse 8 one more time, who more than the unborn are unable to speak up for themselves, speak up for those who cannot speak uh, for themselves. And so the unborn are, are especially in that category, and that's why we have a ministry in that area as well. Zechariah 7 verse 9 says, this is what the Lord Almighty said, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Now we take all this for granted. Uh, it doesn't seem shocking to us because of 3,500 years of the Bible's influence on the cultures of the, of the world. But it was radical stuff when it was written and it continues to be radical stuff uh, in, in, in much of the world and, and even in corners of our own heart as well. Uh, now, look at this, Proverbs 14, verse 31. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. And then let's look at Proverbs 19, verse 17. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. Did you ever think that you were able to lend God money? How do you lend money to the creator of the universe, the God of the universe? By who, if by being kind to the poor. By being kind to the poor, we lend to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. Now, here's, here's just such an important point. God identifies with those at the bottom and not at the top of the hierarchy of societies and cultures. God identifies with those at the bottom and not at the top. And this is absolutely revolutionary. Pause, pause for a moment, just to, to let that sink in. Absolutely revolutionary. In all other ancient cultures, in every other ancient culture of the time in which these words were written, the gods identified with those at the top. The gods, little g, always identified with those at the top. It was understood that the reason the people at the top were at the top is because the gods had put them there. And if you want to know about what the gods thought about anything, you just go to the people at the top because they're the ones that know what God's thinking. And to oppose the people at the top was to oppose the gods. So now finally, after all that detour, we come back to the story of Naaman, and now it makes even more sense than it did before. This is why in the story of Naaman, the Syrian general Naaman, who's at the top, goes straight to the Syrian king at the top, who gives him a letter of recommendation to the king of Israel at the top, and he sends him with $2 million, and Naaman shows up and says, I want my miracle. I got my recommendation from the top, I'm at the top, you're at the top, here's my $2 million bribe uh, to the God of Israel, I want my miracle. Uh, because he thought that the God of Israel was like all the other gods of that time. And the king of Israel, what does he do? He tears his clothes and says, it doesn't work like that here. Our God is different than any other God. Our God treats everybody equally, and he even identifies more with the people at the bottom than with the top. 
welcome to the upside down world of the God of the Bible and his son, Jesus Christ. Here's how David describes God in Psalm 68, verse 5. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Now, just one other thing, and then we'll proceed to finish up the story of Naaman. Jesus models this whole upside-down world. He was born in a feeding trough. Um, do you remember this old, it's a really old uh, Christmas hymn. Maybe you haven't heard it. Um, it was new to me. But the words go like this. Seek not in courts or palaces, nor royal curtains draw, but search the stable, see your God extended on the straw. When Jesus was dedicated at the temple, Mary and Joseph uh, offered two pigeons as a sacrifice because that's all they could afford. In Matthew 8, verse 20, Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. When Jesus was crucified, all he owned in this life was a single garment. So those of us who follow Christ are to have this same concern for those who are powerless, those of us who love God, that follow Jesus in his footsteps. We are to have this same concern for, for the powerless, for, for those that are most in need um, or, or around us. Uh, I mentioned a third hero that I had as a kid. Uh, when I was uh, 10, 11, 12 years old, my personal hero, our family had Billy Graham as a hero, had Dwight Eisenhower as a hero, but here's, here's who my personal hero was. His name was Lou Brock, and he just died a, a week ago today. Just, just last Sunday, uh, he, he died. And I, I got tears in my eyes when I heard about it, because he was my childhood hero. He's one of the greatest baseball players of all time, uh, known for his base stealing and his hitting for the St. Louis Cardinals. Led him to a World Series championship in 1964 and 1967. Uh, so when I was eight and when I was uh, 11, he won the World Series. And, but then in 1968, they lost to the Detroit Tigers in seven games. He had a monster series, just a tremendous series. But, uh, and this is one of the great mysteries of that World Series, was he didn't slide at home plate on this one play, and he got called out, whereas if he had slid, he would have been safe, and probably the Cardinals would have won over the Tigers. But he didn't do that. But despite that disappointment, uh, after the series was over, the Detroit Tigers are all celebrating in the locker room, spraying champagne on each other, and Lou Brock quietly slips into the Tigers' locker room and begins to quietly congratulate each of the members of the Detroit Tigers. He was the epitome of class. He was a follower of Jesus with all of his heart. And as a kid, I just loved him, and, and he was my hero. Interesting thing about Lou Brock is he had three careers. He was a baseball player. When he retired from that, he became a florist, <laughs> opened up his own floral shop and was a florist, and then he became a pastor. So he was a baseball player, a florist, and then a, a pastor. And one of the things Lou Brock said about how we're to, to live out Christ in front of the people around us, he said, you can't hide God in you. God was not meant to become part of you and you hide out in the closet. I don't think he wanted that. I think he wanted people to see the Christ in you that reflects him. The, the same Christ that has a concern 
uh, for those at the bottom, not just for those at the top, for, for those that are powerless. If we are to follow in his footsteps, we are to follow uh, that biblical justice as well. Uh, he identifies with people at the bottom, but God still loves people at the top as well. He identifies with the people at the bottom, but he still loves people at the top. And so as a result of that, Elisha uh, reaches out to, to Naaman anyway, despite all these strikes against him, like being an idol worshiper and an enemy of Israel and thinking he could buy his way. Uh, verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have, have the man come to me? And he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So that's why God is going to give Naaman a comeback, even though he is an unlikely candidate. Uh, he's an idol worshiper. He's an enemy of Israel. He thinks he can buy a miracle. And finally, number four, Naaman was a proud and angry man. Uh, verse 9, so Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. I just love this scene. Got this poor little prophet's house, probably wouldn't, nothing more than a shack. And with this huge entourage, Naaman shows up. Two million dollars in stuff. All of his, I mean, stretch limo, ten-humped camel. Pulls up in front, stopped at the door. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him. Now, this is, this is something we might miss. This is very, very important. Uh, this was a huge insult in this culture. For Elisha personally not to go out and talk to Naaman, but to send a messenger to deliver the message, big insult to Naaman. And explains why he gets so irritated in, in just a moment. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my uh, leprosy. He thought, you know, I'm a big deal. And the way I get healed, the way I get saved is a big deal. I mean, this is the way our human flesh is. We're big deals. And we think God should save us in a difficult way. It should be hard. It shouldn't be simple. It shouldn't be easy. If Elisha had told him to crawl on his hands and knees to the top of Mount Sinai, he probably would have done it. If he had told him to go and fast in the desert for 100 days, he probably would have done it. Uh, but he thought, you know, he's going to come out and wave his hand. There's going to be triple, not just double rainbows, triple rainbows and, and fire and lightning and thunder in the skies. And then uh, God with a Morgan Freeman voice is going to say from heaven, I heal you now, my son. He was a big deal and he wanted to be saved in a, in a big way. And so it offended his pride. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned away and went off in a rage. Now, he does have a point about the rivers, and there's a little bit of, I wouldn't call it racism, but a little bit of nationalism uh, going on here. Uh, the Greeks called the Abana River, today it's called the Barada River, they called it uh, the Golden River. The rivers of Syria were called by the Greeks just these beautiful, wonderful rivers. 
Whereas the Jordan River, now in some places it's nice, and if you go to Israel with Pastor Lisa and Dr. Carl on one of our Purpose Church Israel trips, you'll go to a nice part of the Jordan, and there you can be rebaptized as a sign of recommitting yourself uh, to Christ. But in many places, the Jordan looks kind of like an irrigation canal, like an irrigation ditch, something you see in Bakersfield, all right? And so he says, look, why can't I go to a nice river like that? Why do I have to dunk myself in a muddy irrigation canal like that? And so it offended his pride. But here's where the story turns. But Naaman was willing to humble himself. Verse 13, he's got this one redeeming quality, way down deep. Naaman's servants went to him and said, you know what, Naaman? Interesting about him, he's willing to listen to other people, and not just anybody, but to his servants, to those under him. Remember the little servant girl? He was willing to listen to her. Uh, And now his servants come to him, and they said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he swallowed his pride. He said, you're right, you're right, you're right. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times. Now, we don't know how that went. Was it a partial healing over seven times? I bet, just kind of knowing how God operates, it wasn't that way at all. I bet you nothing happened until the seventh time. So he dips himself once, nothing. Twice, nothing. Three times, nothing. Fourth time, little titter in the crowd, I mean, this commander, all he's, the, he depends on his soldiers respecting him. He can't look like a fool in front of him. Why am I doing this? How do I get myself into this? Five times, looks up, nothing. Six times, nothing up. I'm gonna stop, I'm gonna stop. I feel like a fool. He dips himself one more time, seven times, as the man of God had told him. Do what God tells you to do even when you have to humble yourself, even when you feel foolish doing it, even when you don't understand it, he did as the man of God had told him, and he comes up the seventh time, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. And now way more important than a healing, because a healing would just buy him another five or 10 years, and then he's gonna die anyway. Or maybe it doesn't buy him any extra time. It just buys him more comfort, being freed of his leprosy until he dies. But he became a follower of God. And that's way more important, because that is for eternity. Uh, D.L. Moody writes, he, Naaman, lost his temper. Then he lost his pride. Then he lost his leprosy. That is generally the order in which proud, rebellious sinners are converted. Verse 15, then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and he said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Do you need a comeback today? Three closing questions. Number one, are you asking God for a comeback? I mean, it starts with just asking him for one. Are you praying? Are you saying, God, give me that miracle that I need? God, give me that comeback. The first step is just to ask for it, to, to pray for it. Number two, are you doing what God told you to do? 
Have you ever taken the step of being baptized? There's so much in this story that illustrates what baptism is all about. Humbling yourself, obeying God, uh, doing what God told you to do. Uh, if you've never been baptized, or maybe you'd like to rededicate your life and be rebaptized, next Sunday, a week from today, at the outdoor 945 service, we're going to have those outdoor baptismal uh, pools that we have at the Fairplex, and they're going to be there. And as soon as that 945 service is over at 1045, uh, we're going to baptize anybody that wants to be baptized. Just bring a change of clothes, and we would love, it's probably going to be hot enough that you don't even have to bring a change of clothes. Just dry in five minutes after you get baptized. We would love, if you've never been baptized, maybe this is the step God is, is uh, commanding you to do, to show publicly that you're a follower of, of Jesus. Maybe what God's asking you to do is to join a rooted group, uh, we launched those uh, today. Rooted is a is a ten week program in which it just it. I, I will promise you, if you do it, it did it for my life. It'll kick you into a higher gear in following after Jesus. There's no better investment of time you could make this fall. No better time to do it because if you do it online, it's just going to be the simplest time to do this. And we have all kinds of groups. Some groups are online. Some groups are in person. They're all through the week at different times, uh, places. All you have to do is go to purposechurch.com slash groups. Purposechurch.com slash groups. And you can find out about how you can, you can be a part of Rooted this fall. I urge you to do that if you've never done it before. 5 p.m., 5 o'clock tonight, we're going to be an online launch for it. I'm going to be there. I would just love to see you there. I guarantee it's going to change your life. Just like, just like Naaman, if you want to come back, Rooted is the absolute best way to start that uh, comeback. And then number three, are you letting your pride stand in the way? Are you letting your pride, like Naaman, stand in the way? If you've never committed your life to Jesus, to follow him, if you've never had that comeback, which begins by turning your heart and your life over to Jesus, would you pray with me uh, silently now as I pray out loud? Just three phrases, sorry, thank you, and please pray with me, uh, would you? Um, Lord, I'm sorry for the wrong in my life. And, and just like Naaman, I have been proud. Uh, I've depended on myself rather than on you. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. But now thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross so that I could be forgiven. And then please, please, Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Savior. Be my leader. Be my Lord. I want to humble myself and follow you for the rest of my life. And I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen.